So salvation is um, necessary because, as um, St. Paul cried out one day, why do I do the things I do not want to do? So there's a disjunction in us. There's a something shattered in us. And so we need the Savior to come and heal, which is what Savior means. Salve, the one who heals. And again, as we mentioned the other day, what heals, right? The relationship heals. There are miracles. The blind man, the little girl who died and Jesus came and raised her from the dead. But they're called miracles because they are. They're different. That's why it's a miracle. Okay, What's the norm of the relationship? The norm of the relationship is just staying in it. All the healing, all the wisdom, all the new behavior that you're longing for, is going to happen as you stay in the relationship. Don't leave. The interesting fact, right, that most Catholics who leave the church don't go anywhere else. It's almost like they knew they had the best, so why bother with something inferior? There's some very strange mystery in that. Um, when Catholics no longer worship, they just no longer worship. They don't say, oh, I think I'll go and be a Presbyterian. The majority of them don't. They stay at home. And of course, probably they stay at home because some confusion, some uh, pain in them, some affliction in them uh, was not dealt with correctly or they didn't know how to deal with it. Usually some human error. And then they just stay away. Don't do that. Don't ever stay away. No matter what humans do. The, the wonderful teaching in the Catholic Church that the man who stands at this altar, no matter what his own personal sinful state, will always deliver Christ to us. Objectively, always deliver Christ to us. That's why, like, when a deacon might be given a retreat or a deacon might be baptizing your baby or a deacon might be giving a homily, people will say, is that deacon going to baptize? No, I don't want him. Um, is that deacon going to preach? I don't want him. And they go looking or they reject. But if you go to 8 a.m. Mass and the priest you can't stand is celebrating Mass... Because he's such a jerk. You don't leave. Because you know it's not about him. He could be the jerkiest guy on the planet. But he's going to deliver Christ to you. It has nothing to do with his personality. With his moral standing. Other uh, ministers you may judge on their personality. I go listen to that guy. But a priest is ridiculous. You go into the confessional and you see who the priest is there with his name on the door. You say, I'm not going to that guy. Well, you it's the only name game in town. You have to go to that guy. Because to go to him is to go to Christ. 
And it doesn't matter what he is personally. He is always delivering Christ. That is one of the greatest freedoms and revelations of doctrine the church has ever given us. That our salvation does not depend on the holiness of the minister. Our salvation does not depend on the personality of the minister. Our salvation depends on the action of Christ. And as long as the priest does what the church wants him to do, the actions of Christ are going to affect us. Never leave the church. There's nothing else. There are fractured rays of light in other churches. There are accidental stumblings upon truth in other religions. But everything God wanted to say clearly has been said in Jesus. There is nothing more to say and nothing has been said more fully and completely than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus about the way God thinks about us. What God intends toward us has been fully revealed in Jesus and Jesus alone. Never leave the relationship. And again, I just emphasize that it's the relationship, not the miracles. Sometimes we're disappointed in the God we have. And in the way he has chosen to save us. He has chosen to save us in an unsuperman-like way. Superman saves people from evil. Jesus joins us in the evil. Jesus is not a fireman. A fireman runs into the fire and rescues and takes out. Jesus runs into the fire and burns with us. Very strange. And that's what you're looking at all day long, the crucifix. All of you, because of sin, you all have to die. And God said, may I join you? As opposed to, let me end death and suffering. I don't know why he did it that way. I'd prefer on alternate Thursdays that he was a fireman. And to come in and just take my disease away. But in some strange logic of love, he instead has said, I will join you in your suffering. And one of the reasons might be that suffering has a way of isolating us. Suffering has a way of making us lonely. And too much suffering can isolate us and make us so lonely 
that we might be tempted to do the worst of all things, which is Job's temptation to curse God and die. And since loneliness is worse than physical pain and death, Jesus decided to forestall the worst of all things by assuring us that in your unraveling state as a human being, the one thing you can never say is you're alone. And if you make the act of faith, that alone will save you from despair and the temptation of Job. I will curse God and die. So when we look at the crucifix, what we're looking at is the logic of love. Let me join you. When my brother-in-law died, died in a hospital, my sister died prematurely, a very young man. As he was dying in bed, my sister could do nothing else other than to climb into the bed with him. She climbed into the bed with her dying husband, held him as he was dying. Let me join you. That's the impulse of love. I will join you in what's unstoppable, inevitable. Even if you think of Lazarus, Jesus says, come out. Lazarus comes out. Everyone's like, Lazarus is alive. Let's have a party. Ten years later, Lazarus gets hit by a a cart hauling rocks or something. Doggone it, Lazarus is dead again. If I was Lazarus, I might be the most angry man in history. I died twice. Most people die once. Poor Lazarus had to go through it twice. And if he had any sense in his mind when he came out of that tomb, he might have said, Jesus, really? Because he didn't assume into heaven like the Blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> he got hit by a donkey cart. Everyone dies. I don't know why, but we could say it this way. It's unstoppable. And since it's unstoppable, Jesus said, I want to join you in that which is irrevocable because I love you. All of us will have decrepitude. All of us will collapse our bodies will begin to degenerate. And he's saying, since I lived all the sufferings of humankind, please know that you are never, ever alone. That's why the movement toward despair, let's say, in the um, suicide movement, euthanasia movement, is uh, kind of a, a movement of those who feel that pain ends relationships, pain. And, and Jesus went all the way into the tomb to, to tell us, no, no, I'm still there with you. Pain doesn't mean I've left you. 
I'm still there. I'm still, oh, I'm dying, Jesus. No, no, death doesn't mean I've left you. See, there I am. I'm going to come in to death with you. There's no place that we go or anything that we experience that we could ever despair and say, God has left me. The revelation of Jesus is that God has joined you. Again, that's what Christmas is about. He has become one of us. In every feature and facet, he has joined us so that we will not despair. He's not a fireman. He doesn't save us from the flames. He joins us in the flames. Very mysterious. Very mysterious. 21 says, Christ died for us, not in order to dispense us from dying, but rather to make us capable of dying in and with and for him. In and with and for him. There's a very interesting book called Deathbed Conversions. Anybody ever read it? I think it's mostly movie stars, if I remember correctly. Famous people who kind of got into heaven under the veil of secrecy on their deathbed. It's just fascinating to see how they grasped and were grasped by Christ and that their death was in him and with him, even at the very end of their life. Christ is the relentless shepherd, always looking for you which was the revelation of that story of the good shepherd. As Jesus said, what shepherd wouldn't leave the 99 and go and find the one? And every shepherd there would say, uh, all of us? No shepherd left a hundred sheep to go find one. That's not what shepherds do. I lived next to a sheep farm once and one of the little lambs got caught in the fence and we heard this bleeding. Marianne and I were like, what is that sound? What is Went out in our backyard and there was a little lamb. He caught in the fence. He looked like he broke his leg. And I was like, I'll save him. And I went over the fence and disentangled him, ran across the pasture and gave it to the farmer. And he looked at me like, thanks. <laughs> and then a friend of mine told me later, they probably had lamb chops. I mean, it's a, it's a lamb. <laughs> One lamb. No big deal. No shepherd's going to leave the hundred to find the one. It's backwards. Jesus leaves the 99 to find the one. Me. You. He's always looking. Always searching. And all he asks is that when, when we go through life for our 60, 70, 80, 90 years, when we go through life, be vulnerable to being found. Don't, what's the word? Don't harden your heart. Be vulnerable. Supple. Be available. Be open. It's kind of like when you were an immature husband, those who are married, and your wife did something wrong, and instead of making up, you gave her the silent treatment. That's what a, that's what a hardened heart looks like. And your wife couldn't reach you 
because you were such a baby and you were like uh, pouting and being silent. And she tried to reach you and no. Come on, let's. Ma- I'm going to make a joke here. Try and get you back to me. No, I'm punishing you for not being what I wanted. Hardened heart. All Jesus asks is that we never get a hardened heart because then he can't find us because it's locked from the inside, as C.S. Lewis said. It's locked from the inside. And the only door he can't open is the door that's locked from the inside. So always have your door open. Always be hospitable to God. You are welcome whenever you want to come. And whether you're late or whether you're early, it doesn't matter. You're welcome. I want to stay in a disposition of hospitality toward God. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. So he's joining us. Now, we want to be with Christ, says the notes there. Sacrifice your will, and you can be assured he is with you in the sacrifice. Sacrifice your will, and you can be assured he's with you in the sacrifice. What's the sacrifice? What's the sacrifice? The sacrifice is always the sacrifice of the fat, relentless ego. My way. The sacrifice is always the fat, relentless ego. You sacrifice that and you are with and in Christ. Yeah, but I don't feel the ecstasy. That's what we talked about yesterday. It's okay. Some of the most important things in life you don't feel. But it feels just like pain. When I had to pass by a whole row of double stuffed Oreos and that's all I wanted was the pleasure of the fat and the sugar in my mouth. No, it felt like pain. Yay, I'm one with Jesus. Being one with Jesus feels like pain? Yes, on this side of heaven, when love leaves heaven, love is suffering because of the fallen nature of the world. That's why sometimes it's very hard for you to love your kids or love your wife or your friends, strangers. Because we're not ordered toward love now. We have fallen from it. And we push against what we're naturally ordered toward. It's easier to be selfish. That's what original sin is all about. It's easier to be selfish. Once we are born... The easiest thing in the world is to be selfish. It hurts to think of another. That's why living with teenagers is a purgatory. Because they are just at the full blossom of self-interest. And we're finally growing out of that as adults and parents. And we clash and we can't stand each other. Because their selfishness is so pronounced. I remember once my teenage son left dishes. He was watching TV and he left glass and dishes and 
cupcake wrappers, you know, those hostess cupcake things. And I would always say, just like when I told them to get the toys off the lawn, take your dishes and put them in the dishwasher. So I was fed up. So I took all the dishes and I just put them in his bed. And when he came home that night, he just got into his bed. In the morning, the dishes were on top of the the blankets where I left them. He just got in. I mean, self-involved to the nth degree. If, if I didn't tell them they were there, they'd probably still be there. That's our natural bent. What hurts? Love hurts. You have to push against the natural bent to think of another. And that's why we cry out for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the engine within us that makes it easier for us to finally think of another and push through the pain. Remember that famous story from St. Therese of Lisieux where she couldn't stand one of the nuns in her convent. And it came out later that the nun she couldn't stand thought that Therese was her best friend. That's how Therese treated her. But every time Therese did something good for this nun, it hurt. She had a push against the pain. But notice such a legacy. Therese dies. This nun who Therese, every time she tried to love, hurt her. It hurt her to, to choose the good of this nun. And when Therese dies and this nun comes up to her casket and says to everyone, Sisters, she was my best friend. Imagine that. See, that's true divine love. True divine love. That I will your good, even though it's killing me on the inside. That's God. I will your good, even though you're killing me. With nails on a cross. That's divinity. Only divinity. That's why the most difficult teaching of our church is not any of the sexual teachings that people get all bent out of shape over. The most difficult teaching of our church is the one we never talk about because we know that it is Calvary in the flesh. And that is to love and forgive and pray for your enemies. That is the apex of Christian moral teaching. To love, to will the good of the person who hurt you. To do that is to be another Christ. And to get to be another Christ is why you feed at this altar every Sunday. Because the effects of this altar to a vulnerable heart is to move you into being other Christs. And that's how we live the resurrection, as the last meditation says there in your notes. That's how we live the resurrection before we die.
we live the resurrection before we die by forgiving those who hurt us. In order to get to heaven, the phrase we use, get to heaven, you have to be a dead and raised already. You have to be dead and raised already before you die. That's what a saint is. A saint. The reason when you read uh, biographies of saints, especially in religious orders, a lot of times the saint was the most difficult person to live with because everyone else was following the natural bent of fallen human nature. But the saint was following the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so they would butt heads with the saint because the saint always was a burr under the saddle of their conscience. It's very inconvenient to live with a corpse. Very inconvenient to live with someone who's dead. And when you're with a saint, you're with someone who's dead. Dead to this world, alive to Christ. Not very convenient. But we don't get to heaven unless we have died to all the things that are antithetical to the Christ. That's why when you die, you won't be surprised you're in heaven. You're, you're not going to die and then wake up in heaven and say, oh, how did I get there? Because you'd been there all along. There's no discontinuity, there's continuity. You're either in heaven now or you'll never get there. You're either in heaven now and when death finds you, you just continue. You're not like changing horses. You're riding one horse and then you stop and get off on another. It's continuous living. And it all begins now. I remember my grandmother was a saint. I was, a, again, a teenage boy, a selfish-centered teenage boy. And one day my grandfather was sick and my mother told me to get up, go help Nana. She needs help at the grocery store. And I was like, no, go. So it was around noon or so. I'm supposed to meet her. And I go over to her house and she's sitting on the porch. You know, old people are never late. They don't have much to do. So they're always on time or early. So she's waiting for me already. We go to the grocery store. We start shopping. As we start shopping, she hears the church bells for the Angelus. And she says, oh, Jimmy, it's time for my rosary. I'm like, well, great. We know we're shopping here. And she opens her purse and takes out a rosary. And I said, I can't believe she's going to say the rosary while we're shopping. And she took the whole rosary out. I thought she'd be kind of subtle, but she wasn't. And to a 14-year-old boy, the cross on the end of the rosary was about that big. Because we were in a public space. And what the heck is this lady doing? And then, of course, it got worse. In the name of the Father, end of this out loud. Jimmy, join me. The first glorious mystery. So we're heading past the Cheerios. Out loud, all the rosary. And I'm like, I hope Roberta Nicotopoulos isn't here. I hope Roberta Nicotopoulos isn't here. She was the girl I was in love with. And I didn't want her to see me walking around the grocery, praying rosary with an old lady out loud. 
past the sausage. Hello, Helen. The second glorious mystery. She keeps moving. She keeps moving. Keeps saying it. Keeps begging me to join in. And I keep saying, what does Grandpa need? I'm going over to get the beer. Get me out of here. This woman's a nut. Right? And she was annoying. Right? Dead people are annoying. Dead people don't care. Dead people don't check the wind. Which way is it blowing? John Henry Newman said, I am never upset with the frowns of this age because I never sought their smile. That's a dead person. I'm never upset with the frowns of this age because I never sought their smile. I am focused on Jesus. Like two lovers who've been separated and meet in an airport, they just look at each other, run and hug. They don't look around and shake hands because they're dead. They're in love, which is what death is since Christ entered it. My grandmother was in love. It's time to be with the man she loves, God. She's going to be with him, whether it's a grocery store or whether it's church. We're not self-conscious when we're dead. We are other conscious. We're always thinking of the other. That's God. Okay, lastly, does the resurrection influence your life or is it only a misty future wish? Living by faith is living the resurrection. And then the last three little epitaphs there. I encounter you, meaning God, I change. I remain with you, I stay in love. And I live in your presence, and I come to think like you. I stay in love, I come to think like you, I change. I encounter you, I change. I remain with you. Okay? And I stay in the relationship like we started this morning. I stay in the nothing's going to take me out. I stay in love. Like with your wife. The whole point of uh, falling in love is to stay in love. After you fall in love, the work of the marriage is to stay in love. It's not automatic. Once you're baptized, once you fall in love with God, so to speak, the work of the spiritual life then is to stay in love. The reason you said morning prayer today and did your rosary, do adoration, read the scriptures, come to mass, these are all works of you trying to stay in love. It's not automatic. It's not easy, just like in the marriage. I want to stay with you. And then in the end, we'll become one. I will think like you. The, the sense of Paul with the taking on the mind of Christ. Married couples report that sometimes it's, it's, it's rather eerie, right? They're so one that they think the thoughts ahead of time of the other. They think the same thoughts. They are melding into one. 
They are in communion. That's why in really good marriages sometimes, old, old couples, they don't say much because they're in their union. Remember, the silence is always about the kiss. And when you're kissing constantly, you, you might be in a state of constant silence. That's what the Kamaldalese monks are about. They don't talk to anybody because they are always in communion, or at least they aspire to be, with God. Just like the old married couple are silent. My brother and I used to go to this diner in New York and there were, on Saturdays get milkshake and to make fun of this old couple that always came in at four o'clock, the dinner time for the near dead, right? So they'd come in at four and they'd always order the same thing. We'd sit in the booth behind them and laugh and mimic them. Harry, what are you going to have? Said the wife. Uh, Joan, you know what I'm going to have? I'm going to have the soup. Okay, what are you going to have? You know what I'm going to have. I'm going to have the cottage cheese. Okay. So then the soup comes and the cottage cheese comes. And then there's deathly silence in the booth next to us. And my brother and I would always say, save us from old age. It seemed like hell. First of all, no one on the planet should eat cottage cheese. It's not even, not even food. It's something you get in prison called nursing home. To actually order it is kind of mental illness. But old people do that. And so everything they did, we abhorred. Because we were young, vibrant teenage boys. But that silence that followed the slurping of the soup could have actually meant a union and a non-loneliness that two teenage boys could not even fathom as good. We couldn't even fathom it as good because all of our energy was about excitement. It wasn't about union, peace, rest, companionship, communion. Communion. Peace. That's not where teenage boys are. But that's where love goes. That's where love goes. So let's be with Jesus just for a minute. And if there's any clarifications, comments, or questions before we go, we can have a conversation. But let's just be with Jesus for a minute or two. Mm -hmm. And the transcendent is always uh, integrated with the incarnation. And so the beautiful thing about being Catholic for the healing that we may need is that it's always both end. We've always taught that. So um, I, I can only reach you. God can maybe only reach you. God can do what he wants. But to some, it, it looks like to some extent God likes to work through uh, the natural healings first. So you're sick and you come to me for prayer and you die. Oops, sorry. Uh, that guy down the road had a pill that could have saved your life. So we have to take very seriously the incarnation. God came to earth to live on earth and the earth is good and natural things are good. And on occasion, there are spiritual transcendent realities that assist that or supersede it, but as we said before, those are miracles. The most normal thing for the Catholic is to work in tandem with both medicine and mysticism. 
both. We all should be going to the doctor and we all should be receiving Holy Communion. And in that interpenetration of both, we have the fullness of what Catholic life is, a deep respect for the Incarnation while trusting in the transcendent. And whenever we want to do either or, you know there's a form of infidelity there. There's a form of a non-integrated sense of your faith. It's never either or. It's always both end. Does that make sense? Guarding, guarding the yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and always like uh, both with prayer and with uh, the woman. Th- and this is the great struggle. The great struggle for the male because there's natural tendencies in us which are good. And then there are uh, cultural impositions which exaggerate the natural tendencies that uh, might give us leave to rationalize um, an extreme workaholism, achievement-centered identity, or even a loner streak in the male. We'll go off and do it ourselves. So what is natural in us and good, in other words, to work hard, to provide, can be exacerbated by a cartoonish caricature of the male that comes through some cultural elements. And then we begin to think that relationships are second. And uh, our great conversion, a lot of us anyway, for for masculinity, is that relationship has to come first because any achievement we make emanates from the communion that sends us. I can only really reach the peak of my creativity as male if my woman sends me to achieve. If she feels insecure that the bond isn't strong enough, that the communion is anemic, she will become uh, a woman that we can uh, use for the occasion of the greatest male put-down, we say to females. Boy, Sarah, you're so needy. And when we say that to females, we're basically indicting ourselves. Because the only reason a woman is ever needy is because we have not paid enough attention to the relationship so she can internalize our presence and feel safe. And once she feels safe, she'll say, would you please go away? Go harvest, go sell insurance, go make a million bucks. I'm okay. Wow, honey, I thought you wanted me around. You are around. We have suffered the coming of each other deep enough in our continued communication of intimacy that you are in me. I'm safe. Go. Build your building. Win your race. Lift your weights. Get out of here. That's normal. And we are afraid of that. We, she, the woman almost has to tutor us in that. But in the beginning, we're afraid that women are takers the same way that we feel about God. That if I worship God, he's going to take. And the only thing God takes is our sins. And it's telling because we love our sins more than God. And that's the one thing we maybe don't want God to take. I gave a talk once and at the end, 
one of the kids came up, college kid came up and said, hey, I really liked your talk about Jesus. Uh, does, does that mean I have to stop smoking marijuana? He got excited about Jesus and the first thing he thought about was, what's this God going to take from me? And we have that same disposition sometimes toward the female. She's going to take from me. And uh, husbands who have achieved a certain level of intimacy where they have been internalized in their, in their wife's heart know that the wife is a giver. She's a giver. And she's only a taker when she's afraid and insecure. Does that make sense? So that's what you're guarding. You're guarding the intimacy there. That's the yes. Thank you for your attention over the 24 hours. Make sure when you leave today, you say the prayer of St. Michael at the driveway, that all the graces that he gave you and all the intimacy that carried a particular message for you is, is safe in your heart. So it, make sure you intercede, that you're protected. Um, as I said, a lot of retreats, unfortunately, dissipate at the end of the retreat property. Guard that. Don't let that happen.